everyone. Welcome to the Farm Commons podcast, where we explore timely and important legal issues and questions facing the farming community today. For community-based farms with a focus on sustainability, managing legal risks is especially important as many innovative farm enterprises like community-supported agriculture programs, on-farm suppers, and gardening classes, and unique arrangements for land access and employment do not fit neatly into our legal system, leading to vulnerability. But through legal education, we can cultivate greater resilience for your farm business so that you can continue to grow in ways that best support you, your relationships, and your community. At Farm Commons, we'll show you why and how. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Farm Commons podcast. This is Eva here, and I'm excited to be back here with you all today with my colleague, Sarah. And we're going to be talking about uh, more important farm law issues on the farm. I pause there because I don't want to give it away <laughs> all at once. Um, but yeah, we've, we've got a great conversation ahead of us um, in the realm of employment law. So hey, Sarah, how's it going? Hi, Eva. Uh, Eva, I'm I'm out here in Oregon. I know you're over there in North Carolina, so we're on very different coasts. And yeah, yeah um, I'm I'm okay. I'm I'm good over here, but I am suffering from a little bit of uh, poison oak. Have you ever had that? <gasps> oh no, I've not had poison oak before, but I have had poison ivy. That's that's oh that's that's more. right. You've and got, you know, you actually, I think poison ivy is both a type of poisonous plant but also colloquially (laughs) around in in where I am in North Carolina and in the southeast we call poison oak poison sumac we call all of it poison ivy Um, so it's kind of like a catch-all as well as a type of poisonous plant but yeah it's no fun it's no, fun. no, it's no fun. And I have no idea how I got it, but it's oh, no. itchy and scratchy and very, very irritating. But oh, cool. um, yeah, but I'm good. Other other than that. <laughs> so, yeah, well, <laughs> I know. I know that poison, anything itchy that gets on the body is not you know, enjoyable and can really put a dimmer on the day because um, on the land that we're leasing, it's, you know, we've had several people who visit and say, are you guys farming poison ivy? Because it is <laughs> everywhere. It's in our blueberry bushes. It's around oh, our no. garden. It's around every tree base, you know, gosh. Ugh. Well, I know what you're saying and I'm, it's everywhere out here and I'm, I'm pretty good at usually avoiding it um, because I've learned how to identify it after all these years living out here in Oregon and running into it on the trails. And you know, it's funny that we're talking about this because interestingly enough, this poison oak, poison ivy really ties into our topic for the day. Yeah, I, you know, I love a good plant farm law parallel. (laughs) (laughs) So you're probably wondering how in the world does poison (laughs) oak, poison ivy tie into Uh employment law and discrimination? Ooh. Yeah. Okay. So here it is. So the key to stopping discrimination in its tracks is by first learning how to identify it and then avoiding it like that poison ivy. Yeah, absolutely. And so thanks, Sarah, for um, 
setting the stage or setting the, the flora <laughs> for our <laughs> conversation today. So all you farmers out there and farm service providers, uh, Sarah and I are going to be exploring discrimination in employment law. And Sarah's absolutely right there. There actually are a lot of parallels between identifying poisonous plants, whether it's ivy or oak or sumac, and identifying discrimination um, in employment law on the farm. And so I know, you know, we're kind of making light of that subject by drawing um, a parallel, but, you know, getting poison ivy, depending on how allergic you are or poison oak can like be a very serious issue. Like my partner is very sensitive and, you know, he, he's gotten poison ivy that's gone septic and gone into his bloodstream. And, you wow. know, the, the issues just have snowballed from there. And I feel like discrimination, um, discrimination complaints or, um, reports in employment law also have a like a very similar um, snowball effect like they can be minor in some cases but you know that even in minor cases they can snowball and like really get out of hand so yeah they can yeah. become systemic yeah you know so yeah exactly and so you know here at farm commons we're all about legal resilience on the farm business and so you know so much of this involves preventing legal troubles and financial gloom and doom and you know the way farmers really prevent all of this is through education and empowerment so we really like to give a lot of actionable steps that you can prevent you can take to prevent legal problems on your farm so it's no different when it comes to employment law and um, it's, it's actually well it is actually a little different when it comes to employment law because the consequences for avoid for for running into employment law issues can be so severe you might run into fines and fees and and lawsuits and all kinds of all kinds of yuck. So we want to help you avoid all of that. And in recent years, we've had a lot of questions come up around discrimination issues. And you know, I think nobody out there—I won't say nobody—but I think for the most part now, you know, I think that um, I think farm business owners are working really hard to be. Um, to be fair and don't intend to blatantly intentionally discriminate. But I think that the way it's happening is so accidental. So, you know, I think that oftentimes uh, these farm business owners or business owners generally, employers, you know, don't even realize that what they're doing amounts to discrimination. So that's why we have created some new guides uh, to answer these questions and to provide guidance uh, to our farmers, help them answer these questions. That's why we're doing this podcast today is to help farm business owners um, identify potential discrimination issues. And once you learn how to identify it, then you can learn how to avoid it. So that is really what we're going to be talking about here today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that um, great setup for, you know, why at Farm Commons we're exploring discrimination because farmers, you have come to us with so many questions and um, we have, <laughs> my dog's weighing in on this. <laughs> she feels strongly about employment law too. <laughs> yes. uh, and so we've, we've created a resource and um, that resource is called Avoiding Discrimination and Employment for Farm and Ranch Businesses. And so I'll pass it back over to you, Sarah, to share a bit more about how to do that. Thank you, Eva. Yeah, so, you know, in a nutshell, 
what is discrimination? Well, it really is making employment related decisions based on a person's characteristics such as their gender, their race, or their religion. So, uh, you know, as we talk about in the guide as a society, we've decided, you know, that it's unjust to treat people differently because of the way they look or what they believe. So, um, so we've made some laws to prevent this. And so one of those is the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And in that we said, you know, enough is enough. This isn't right. And we're going to do something about this. So, uh, so let's talk about some of those pieces of the Civil Rights Act here. And let's talk about this uh, in terms of, you know, I really like this acronym. I've come up with an acronym to talk about the different characteristics, the different protected characteristics that uh, are involved in discrimination claims. So, uh, shamer. So, I like this acronym because it really gets to the heart of the discrimination topic. So for discrimination, it can really bring up a lot of feelings of shame for people. So for the employee who may have had a lifetime's worth of shame around some of their differences, um, they may feel ashamed because of the color of their skin or their gender identity. Uh, for the employer, they might feel shame around doing the wrong thing. Suddenly they're they're realizing that they're accidentally discriminating, you know, and that can bring up a lot of feelings of shame. So one of my personal heroes, Brene Brown says, you got to name it to tame it. So here we go, shamer. Let's talk about the seven pieces of discrimination. So what does that stand for? Uh, sex, health conditions, age, uh, military status, uh, let's see, we've got another A in there. What's that other A? Arrest and conviction records. That's a new one for me. I didn't know about that. Uh, religion and then race. Yes, thank you so much, Sarah, for um, sharing that acronym, SHAMER, and um, having that be available to us as a tool to um, recall and remember and kind of commit to memory these uh, general categories of discrimination that are acknowledged by the law. And so, you know, we're not putting together this acronym of SHAMER to perpetuate, you know, uh, a sense of like shame, you know, shame on you for, for doing these things because so much of um, discrimination, like you said, is accidental. You know, many, many people who are farmers that we work with are not, you know, intentionally discriminating. It's it's that um, because of language and situational things that discrimination can happen accidentally, and um, it can be really hard to talk about um, both preventing and dealing with discrimination when a claim occurs because there is so much um, anxiety and like a sense of shame woven into it. And so we do want to acknowledge that. And we do think that this acronym is a tool to acknowledge that there is a sense of shame that comes with discrimination. And, you know, we, we as a community committed to legal resilience want to avoid, um, you know, treating people anything less than human and equal. And so um, that's, that's, you know, the ethos that we're coming to in educating on avoiding, preventing, and dealing with discrimination in farm employment law. And um, 
the shamer acronym is really just a tool for um, remembering the the key categories of discrimination that are acknowledged by law um, and just you know as Sarah had mentioned those those categories are sex health conditions age military service or status, arrest and conviction records, um, race, national ancestry, ethnic origin, and religion. So yeah, Sarah, let's let's dive right in and um, start start into how each of these areas can bring about um, a, a legal sense of discrimination. Right. Yeah. Thank you, Eva. Yeah, I think that's great to just remember that so much of this is, you know, not intentional. I think there's so much of this that's accidental. It's because we're, you know, we have grown up in a culture where there is just this bias that we don't even know we have. So, so let's get into some of those, those areas. Okay. So the first one, sex. So, you know, one's gender or sex cannot influence any employment related decision. So I think we all understand the basic premise here, you know, the classic example, treating the woman and the men differently, paying the men more than the women, always passing over the woman for the promotion and giving it to the man. But, you know, it's more than that now. It's um, now employers also can't treat employees differently because of their sexual orientation or gender identity, or also because of conditions associated with the person's gender, like pregnancy, breastfeeding, and even contraceptive use. So you, you can't make employment-related decisions based on assumptions or stereotypes involving gender. So for example, the well-intentioned employer might say, hey, pregnant employee, don't climb up that ladder. You know, they're concerned that it might hurt the baby if the employee would fall off the ladder, you know, but that's making an employment related decision based on gender, or in this case, a condition related to gender, such as pregnancy. Now, if the pregnant employee asks to sit this one out, maybe not go up the ladder, then in that case, it would be appropriate for the employer to accommodate that request. In fact, that's another piece of discrimination on the basis of sex, not providing accommodations for gender related conditions. So for example, it could be discriminatory to not offer a breastfeeding employee a private place to pump. So basically with this one, remember that when it comes to employment, who your employees or potential employees love doesn't matter and how they hold themselves out in the world as male or female or neither, uh, that also doesn't matter. So let's get on to the H. So health conditions. So a person's health conditions also can't be factored in when making employment decisions. So I think that most people, I think maybe you'd agree, Eva, understand the basic concept. Mm -hmm. So the classic example is that a person in a wheelchair isn't hired again and again because they're in a wheelchair you now. So that's obviously a potential discrimination issue, right? Mm -hmm. But it goes beyond those physical disabilities that we think of right away. So this also includes intellectual disabilities and also a bunch of mental health and medical conditions. So you can't make employment decisions based on the fact that someone has uh, depression or uh, PTSD, for example. You can't make employee decisions, employment decisions based on the fact that someone might have a heart condition or allergies. So basically the law says that if you don't offer reasonable accommodations for the worker, 
or if you're in an interview situation, you're looking for workers, you know, potential workers uh, with a health condition, that that could be illegal discrimination. No, but what does that really mean? Well, it means that you must offer whatever help they need in order to be able to participate uh, in an interview, for example. So you're looking to hire workers. So maybe uh, you might need a telecommunications device for an applicant with a hearing impairment, or you might have to, if you've already employed this person, uh, think about delaying the workday start time if this employee has to, say, undergo some medical treatments in the morning. So if the employer can make these accommodations reasonably, and that's the key word here, reasonably, that means meaning without severe economic harm to the business, then that's what they're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, and figuring out um, what that severe economic harm is will be necessary for for showing that there would be harm to the business done by making those those accommodations and so that they would be unreasonable. And so right. that's where um, some paperwork and keeping track of how you're making that calculation um, is is especially helpful to show that you've gone through that process. Absolutely. As we'll talk about throughout this podcast, records <laughs> are your friend when it comes yeah. to employment law on the farm. So moving on to the A in our little acronym, AGE, uh, the first A. So it is discrimination to not hire somebody because they are of a certain age. And you know, when we talk about this, it doesn't mean you have to hire somebody who is a certain age. Um, it just means that you can't not hire them because of their age. And I know that can be a really hard thing to figure out. And that's why this discrimination stuff is so um, so sticky, you know, but the Federal Age Discrimination and Employment Act says you can't decide to hire somebody, you can't decide uh, to not hire somebody over the ripe old age of 40, just because they are over 40. So I'm over 40. So uh, this one uh, <laughs> speaks to me, I think, particularly. <laughs> so that was interesting for me to realize, I didn't realize that uh, the you only had to be 40 and above to to be protected but so the next one uh, military service this was also really surprising to me to learn about so there's something called the uniformed services employment and reemployment rights act otherwise known as usera and so that act says that you can't make employment related decisions based on a person's military status. So in other words, you can't decide, well, I'm not going to hire this person because they used to be in the military. Oh, you know, they might, I don't know, maybe they have PTSD, maybe they have some kind of service-related disability. Uh, anyway, that can't factor into your decision. And you also can't not hire somebody or fire somebody because they are currently serving in the military and, you know, therefore you're concerned they might be deployed at any time. And then you also must make sure that you give a person's job back to them when they return from active military duty. So this really is a law to protect um, folks who are in, in the military. So that was an, an, a new one for me. Uh, and then this one too was interesting. So this, so arrest in conviction records. Um, so there's no, law that outright prohibits discrimination against somebody because maybe they've been arrested or convicted of a crime. Um, so yeah, no law like the federal 
the Civil Rights Act doesn't protect against this. There's not a, it's not protected in the way that, you know, a person's gender is or their religion, but it's something to pay attention to because it could lead to potential discrimination claims. So um, just think about it. Our criminal justice system disproportionately arrests and convicts people of color, for example. So it is possible that choosing to not hire somebody with a criminal record could have an underlying discriminatory element. So for example, if you hire a white applicant with a marijuana possession conviction, but you don't hire an applicant of color with the same conviction, potentially this could be discrimination. So just something to think about there. Uh, so now we're on to our last two, two R's of our, our shamer acronym here. So this one is um, R for race, national ancestry and ethnic origin. So the Civil Rights Act says when making employment related decisions, uh, you're not supposed to factor in a person's birthplace, their citizenship status, or even their cultural traditions or personal characteristics that reflect their cultural background. So a certain accent or maybe a preference to communicate in a certain language. And on to our final R, uh, religion. <laughs> made it to the end. Yeah. <laughs> oh, saving a big one here for last. Uh, so the Civil Rights Act also says it's discrimination to make employment decisions that factor in a person's religious affiliation. So the obvious example um, comes to mind. You know, you can't say, look, I'm just going to hire Catholics. That's it. Or, you know, I'm not going to hire someone because they're Muslim. You know, so that's pretty clear, but you also can't make decisions based on a person's beliefs. So not just organized religion, but moral beliefs and practices. And I know this is a squishy one too, because uh, where is that line, right? So, and, and if an employee wants to come to work, say in traditional religious attire, maybe they um, wear a yarmulke or a burqa and maybe uh, you don't allow them to and don't have a good reason for that, um, that could potentially be grounds for a discrimination claim. Mm -hmm. so, so that's it. So that's our, those, those are the factors. Those are the different characteristics that um, you really just wanna make sure that you're paying attention to on the farm and in, in your employment. And so, you know, something I didn't talk about yet, Eva, is, uh, you know, how does this really apply to folks on the farm? So now you know all about these different characteristics, right? You've got your, your acronym, you know the different characteristics, but you might be asking yourself here, but how does that apply to me on the farm? You know, what do these laws actually apply to me? I mean, I've just got, like, I have one employee. Is this really going to be a law that I have to pay attention to? Yeah, and those you know? are all really reasonable questions to be wondering. And if so, farmers, if you're listening in and, you know, you're having those thoughts run through your mind, you only have, you know, one employee or two employees, they're part-time or they're only there for a few hours. Um, or you might have a host of other workers on the farm that you're not calling employees, but who may still meet the criteria of uh, legal employees, which we get into in other podcast episodes. So <laughs> we don't have to go down that rabbit hole right now. But um, 
if you're, if you're wondering how it applies to you, again, you're not alone. That's, that's a very reasonable and common question. And uh, the answer is, you know, these laws are in place to protect personal char characteristics of all people, no matter where they work, how long they're working, um, but as people and persons protected by the laws of, of the country that we live in, being the United States. Um, and so they apply to all people working in all places. And uh, there are, yes, exemptions for farm and farm workers and farm employers, as there are for many other aspects um, of the law. And that does apply on the federal level in some cases regarding discrimination. However, we also have state laws to contend with and state laws are generally more um, tailored to the specific um, populations and landscapes and culture of the state and so are oftentimes more stringent than federal law and the, the general rule of thumb is you always want to um, be following the, the stricter requirement and so you might think that your your farm business is too small to you know have to you know foster a discriminate discriminatory claim um, or have one be seriously considered, but um, again these these characteristics that um, the acronym SHAMAR tool um, elaborates on and all the laws that again Sarah mentioned um, are there and exist to protect those personal characteristics. So. Yeah, and there are so many. I mean, there's there's a whole smattering of federal laws from the American Disabilities Act to the Equal Pay Act. Uh, there's just a bunch to try to keep track of. And sometimes, you know, the Civil Rights Act, for example, says it only applies for employers with 15 or more employees. The Age Discrimination and Employment Act only applies for employers of more than 20 employees. And yet others apply no matter how many workers you have, like the military law that I mentioned. So it's really hard to keep track of all this. And like Eva mentioned, there's um, so many uh, state laws on top of that. And so it's very hard to keep track of all of that. Now we do have two guides that are state specific. So we have one for Minnesota and one for um, for Wisconsin. So if you're farming in either of those states, we have some guides tailored just to you. But I think, you know, really our Farm Commons philosophy here is for maximum legal resilience. Just assume that these laws all apply to you. So that way you don't need to get into the weeds on when and how these laws might apply. And also you're just going to be a better employer, creating a better place to work. And that can't be bad, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that's right. No. So in terms of, um, well, you kind of gave away my next question, Sarah, <laughs> how to avoid uh, discriminatory claims on the farm. I think, you know, you said it beautifully to have the default position of assuming that all of these laws apply to you and um, cultivating uh, an intentionally non-discriminatory uh, work environment and like non-discriminatory according to the law um, and you know doing your due diligence to be inclusive and open and reasonable and you know if there are some calculations that have to be taken in order to figure out what is reasonable for your farm business and when you're making accommodations whether it be um uh access physical access to the property or um you know amplification tools like for those who have um hearing impairments you know whatever it may be you know 
coming from the assumption that the laws apply to you and then doing your due diligence to make to go through the paperwork process of showing that you've gone through your due diligence yeah that will will render um, strong legal resilience for you to move forward exactly yeah so let's talk about that you know how to avoid it on the farm should we get into the into the the real meat of it the, what the farmers all really want to hear yeah yeah the the action I guess not really the action steps but like the areas to be cognizant of of where there is a potential to avoid discrimination and on the flip side where discrimination can occur so I think yeah. those those hot spots or pressure points um, would be great to yeah. share exactly okay so uh so yeah so avoiding avoiding discrimination on the farm like you'd avoid that poison ivy uh so i like to talk about it in terms of a life cycle so you know employment really does have a life cycle right there's there's basically five 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 stages of employment and so we'll talk about potential discrimination and how to avoid that discrimination in each of those five stages. So the five stages I look at are, so the first, first stage is you got to get your, your uh, job ad out there, right? You need to tell people that you are hiring, right? And then, so next year you go to the interview stage, uh, that'd be number two. Number three is you're actually hiring some folks to work on your farm. And number four, they're out there working on the farm. And number five, now this is one that nobody really likes to ever um, encounter, but it happens sometimes is the firing or having to let an employee go. So let's just get into those five stages a bit and figure out what you can do to avoid discrimination in each of those stages here. So the job description or advertisement. So the first stage, of course, is going to be putting the word out there about your job. So how do you do that? Well, first, you need to write a job description so potential applicants know what they might be signing up for. And then, of course, you need to advertise it. So put it places where potential applicants are likely to see it. So your strategy here is that you want to make sure that there's nothing about your job ad that could be viewed as discriminatory. So how do you do that? How do you write a discrimination proof um, job description? So, you know, nothing is for sure, um, but we'll give you some good advice to make sure you're discrimination proof as possible here in your ad. So you want to create a description that does not show any preference for a certain gender, age, race, or religion. So all of those bases for discrimination that we talked about already. And the best way to avoid that is to focus on the job itself. Write a description that gets into the duties and responsibilities of the job, the working conditions, and the required knowledge, skills, and abilities. So what education and experience do you really need to have to do this job well? How much weight do your workers really need to be able to lift on the farm? Does the job involve working with hazardous equipment or in harsh conditions? What are the work schedules and production expectations? Um, do you or do they actually need to be fluent in English, for example? Do you have, do they have to wear protective equipment like hard hats or respirators? So a few pro tips here on the use of language in your ad. So pro tip number one, 
use gender neutral language. So instead of foreman or salesman, um, maybe just try for person or salesperson. Keep it real neutral. Uh, pro tip number two, avoid words or phrases that indicate a preference for a certain age, gender, or even intellectual capabilities. So if you don't really need a college degree to do the job, um, don't include that in the requirement in your job description. Um, maybe don't say strong young workers, as you might be discriminating against those of the tender age of 40 and above. Mm -hmm. An example that's coming to my mind is um, like a farm ad for or seeking young millennial couple, uh -huh. you know, like that, that is ripe with, um, yeah. you know, potentially, well, kind of clearly discriminatory language. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Number three pro tip, uh, you can certainly encourage a diverse pool of applicants and that's great, but there is an art to it. So you don't want to blatantly state things like, like Eva just said, you know, mm -hmm. looking for a, a young millennial couple. Okay. So um, maybe also don't say things like retirees wanted or, you know, looking for Muslim workers or stay at home mothers. So all of this too could be discriminatory. So um, that's, you know, that's indicating that employment related decisions are being made on the basis of one of those protected characteristics. So anything that is related to age, sex, religion, you know, instead, maybe just, just say you're an equal employment opportunity, or it's, it's okay too to say, you know, women, minorities, and individuals with disabilities are encouraged to apply. There's nothing, um, nothing uh, risky about that. So, okay, so moving on here to this, the second uh, stage of this, the interview life cycle, uh, stage number two. So you've put your ad out there and now you're interviewing some applicants, so great. So unfortunately, this stage also brings some potential discrimination danger. So where does that danger lie? So it can be there lurking in the questions that you ask and in the interview process itself. So here's where you can get into trouble with that. By asking questions and interviewing in a way that elicits information about protected characteristics, so race, religion, et cetera, gender, all of those things we've talked about. Uh, so questions like, are you married? <laughs> Do you have children? Do you plan to be pregnant soon? So those would not be appropriate interview questions. Uh, neither are questions like, when were you born? Where were you born? You know, you want to make sure that you're steering clear of asking those questions. And again, here we've got a few uh, pro tips for you. Uh, pro tip number one here, uh, it's very helpful to prepare a list of questions ahead of time. And questions that you ask all the applicants that relate directly to the job you're hiring for. So this will keep you on track, keep you in the safe lane, out of danger. Uh, you will not accidentally steer into discriminatory territory where you find out information that doesn't apply to the job and relates to these protected characteristics. So pro tip number two, uh, you might be cruising along in the safe lane, asking zero questions that could lead to you finding out information about race, religion, sex, age, etc. And then all of a sudden, your interviewee tells you about how they had their wedding on a farm. And that's why they're so interested in this job, which will help with barn weddings. Oh, and then, um, 
she slips in there that her wife is very supportive of this job and that she's comfortable with her taking on this job, even though she's pregnant and at high risk being over the tender age of 40 and all. <gasps> Ooh, yikes. A very loaded <laughs> scenario. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So what do you do with all that? I mean, that's, you've tried as hard as you can to stay out of danger here. You've asked all the right questions and then boom, here's just this zinger, right? Just a bunch of them just stacked, right? So what do you do with all that? Well, first of all, don't panic. Okay. So ask, don't ask follow-up questions at that point. Okay. Just um, steer the conversation gently away from this terrifying topic and back into the safe lane. Okay. So um, sure, it would be better if you didn't know all this information. But if you have a good interview process where you're consistent and you ask the same questions to each applicant, you have helpful evidence that you're not engaging in discriminatory practices. So pro tip number three, uh, a note about this process. Okay, so first uh, of all, you have have to choose applicants to interview, right? So what does that process look like? How can you make sure that you're making these decisions without discriminating unintentionally? So uh, a couple tips on that. Um, I My uh, spouse told me that at their organization, they cover up the names and other identifying information of applicants on their resumes to ensure that they are looking at the skills more objectively without knowledge of gender or their personal characteristics. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, that is and, a great way to go about. And um, yeah, you're, you're just making me think, Sarah, like I'm, I'm backtracking a little bit here to step number two or pro tip number yeah. two. Yeah. Um, but that, you know, with pro tip number three, covering up the names and the information, I feel like, um, you know, if people are offering up the information in the interview and like you're talking to them, it's a bit harder to cover up mm -hmm. that, that info. And so I'm trying to, th I'm thinking of it like from the flip side too. So say that they're, um, like it's an LGBTQ plus oriented farm and they have a high preference for mm -hmm. hiring folks of a similar um, orientation or, um, you know, open-mindedness towards that community. And so, you know, they're interviewing a bunch of people and maybe in the interview process, you know, they have these standardized questions. Um, but some of the folks share like that they are cisgender, they're in a heterosexual relationship. They, mm -hmm. they might be giving off more traditional, potentially um, uh, not as open-minded vibes. And so, you know, an employment decision that's made on the basis of that information on the flip side could also be, you know, potentially troublesome information if employment um, yeah. decisions are made uh, based on garnering that info. And so I think um, for you farmers, that's really like the danger that we're <laughs> stating here is not so much the content of what you know, the interviewee has shared, but more so how that content relates to the the shamer categories of, you know, grounds for discriminatory claims. Right. Um, so the risk there is really, you know, someone just, you know, finding out they don't get the job and they 
think about, you know, gosh, what, a, you know, what could I have done that I didn't get the job? Did I say something in the interview? Did I like trip up when I was doing the trial run on the farm? And, and then they have this recollection like, oh, I shared this information in the interview. Maybe they made their decision based on that information. And, you know, they decide to go to your state's, you know, some cases, the, um, the reporting system is housed within the State Department of Labor for discrimination claims, and they go and make a claim on that page. I know, like, that's the case for me in North Carolina. You could just fill out a claim online, and then it's on the state to take a look into the employer. And so that's really, like, the, the big risk underlying, um, you know, what happens if there's grounds for discrimination discrimination like that's the risk yeah one makes a complaint yeah absolutely sometimes too inf too much information can be unhelpful which is yeah. strange in an interview process you're <laughs> wanting to get as much information as you yeah. can right so, yeah totally but you yeah you but you bring up a really good point eva is that this discrimination on the basis of all these different um characteristics it it's not just going one way it's not just that um it's discriminatory to not hire say persons of color. It's also the reverse. It's it's everything. It's making a decision based on on race, no matter what that race is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Making yeah. a decision based on gender or gender identity, no matter what that is. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. And yeah. And, uh, you know, my sister was telling me this uh, story the other day about she heard recently on the radio that a story about an orchestra that historically hired only male uh, musicians. And then they started doing blind auditions. So they didn't see the person who was playing the cello or the violin. And amazingly, after that, 50% of their new hires were women. So, you know, I think what that shows is that it's it does make a difference, you know, as much as we want to think that it doesn't, as much as we want to think we don't have these internal biases, I think that we do. Yeah, there's like research on 11 stages of them, wow. of, of subconscious wow. or implicit biases. So yeah. another conversation for yeah. another time and maybe right. another podcast. <laughs> right, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, so there you go. So some pro tips for the interview process. So then when you get around to the hiring process, so this stage, oh boy, another chance to go astray again. So you may have interviewed applicants and now you need to pick one. So how do you do that? How do you make sure that in making that hiring decision that you're not accidentally discriminating? So basically, what you want to do is create a really solid hiring process that has clear objectives and consistency built in. So how do you do that? Okay, back to the pro tips. Number one, write your answers to interview questions down. So back in all those interviews, just make sure that you're taking good notes. Writing these down is going to be helpful for your memory when you're trying to select the person you're going to hire. So you make your decision based on actual facts and not just broad perceptions or biases or what you might remember. But it's also useful in case you run into legal trouble down the lane. So as with most legal issues on the farm, like Eva mentioned earlier, and I think I chimed in about two, records are generally your friend. So pro tip number two, 
um, cross-reference these answers with the job requirements. So you really want to go back to the skills and experience that are essential for the job. So what skills, what experience are required and what would be helpful? So does that applicant have those? Um, consider using a scoring system too as a way to help bring even more consistency and objectivity to the process. So number three pro tip. Let's talk briefly about social media. So this can be a very tempting tool in the hiring process. So if you have two candidates that appear to be totally equally qualified, you may feel like, ah, maybe I'll just jump on the Facebook or the Instagram, get a little more information, just do a little harmless digging around, you know, find out a little bit more about their experience, about whether I think they really would make um, a good employee. So stop yourself. This is dangerous territory rife with potential discrimination. So when it comes to social media, it really is in your best interest to turn a blind eye so that you don't accidentally learn information about those protected characteristics. So say, for example, Sally seemed like a top candidate and then you learned that she's in rehab or she may be recovering from a severe bout of depression, or maybe that she's much older than she appeared. You know, um, maybe she's into some kind of religion. Um, you, you know, just don't, just don't do it because again, the more information you have about those characteristics, um, the more potential uh, you have to discriminate, um, maybe even if you don't realize you're doing it. And so you hire someone. So let's get into uh, the next employment life cycle stage here. So the working, oh, so you found great employees. What a relief, or is it? You're not totally out of the woods yet as this stage of the employment life cycle is also chock full of potential discrimination issues. So there's great potential, unfortunately, for employees to feel like they're being treated unfairly. And that is due to, um, you know, that it's due to religion, race, gender, age, health conditions, all those protected characteristics. So how do you avoid that? So basically you wanna create consistent and objective processes that accommodate for employees individual differences and then ensure fairness in all things relating to the working conditions of the job. So how are you setting wage rates? Uh, how do you decide to promote an employee? How do you assign job tasks or maybe schedule out work shifts? Have you created open lines of communication and a process through which employees can seek help if they feel like they're being harassed maybe by another employee? Um, do you accommodate where needed? Do you have private bathrooms, changing areas, break rooms? Do you have accessible spaces for those with physical disabilities? So on to some pro tips. And really, I just have one here because this is a big one. And this, this really should help address all of these concerns. Create an employee manual. This is your number one best way to ensure consistency and fairness in the workplace. So you can create processes and policies for all of these things. And it not only will sort of force you to really think about how to make a fair and accessible workplace and create positive work conditions for all, but it's also gonna help with communication with your employees and to provide guidance for when these issues do come up because unfortunately they do come up. Plus, if you ever do run into any discrimination claim, 
having an employee manual will provide good evidence that you take discrimination seriously and you've worked hard to prevent it. And luckily, we have a great sample employee manual on our website that you can take and tailor for your farm operation. And lastly, the one that nobody wants to talk about, nobody ever wants to get to, but sometimes happens. Um, the last stage of the employment life cycle, firing. So there are a lot of reasons that you might need to let an employee go. So sometimes it's because of an egregious reason like stealing from the employer. But oftentimes it can be more benign, um, but still problematic reasons like maybe the employee is just not performing as they need to, or maybe there's just simply no money left in the farm budget to pay the employee anymore. So whatever the case may be, it's really important to make sure that there's no potential for a discrimination claim if it comes to this. And so probably not surprising, most discrimination complaints occur after an employee has been fired or laid off. So how do you avoid such complaints if you have to let an employee go? So basically kind of the same thing we've been saying all along, have clear policies, be consistent, write things down. Records are your friend on the farm. So on to a few pro tips here. Pro tip number one, already mentioned it, but say it again here when it comes to firing, remember that employee manual I mentioned. So it comes in really handy in the firing context too. So it's so helpful to have an employee manual that lays out clear processes for addressing workplace issues such as employee performance or you know maybe a lack thereof. So make sure that employees understand uh, from the get-go what's expected of them. Um, and what will happen if they don't do as expected and what may be grounds for immediate termination. So have the employee read through the employee manual, have them um, sign something saying that they have read it. That's all really good best practices and consider solutions short of, of termination. So addressing performance issues through something like uh, maybe, uh, sounds silly, but an employee improvement plan, for example. So pro tip number two, if you do make the decision to terminate employment, create a process through which this decision can be relayed in a firm but kind way. So stick to the facts. Again, objectivity is your friend. Um, records are your friend. So have an exit interview and take notes from the interview. Okay. Uh, and then pro tip three, if you are contacted um, after the termination, um, say by uh, agencies or you know the employment agency or maybe by prospective uh, employers looking to hire that employee um, just stick to the facts so if you can't say anything nice probably say nothing at all so in other words just you know be honest but but don't be insulting and our final pro tip here on that is um, just an extra one here because firing and discrimination is is it's a big one uh, the way that these things typically shake out is that an employee will make a complaint to the government agency saying that their employer fired them in retaliation for the employee complaining about the em employer. 
So just to be clear here, it is illegal to fire an employee for complaining to you or to a government agency about anything, whether it's work conditions or employment practices and so on. So just take care to make sure that that's not happening on your farm. Whew. Good job, well. Sarah. You've worked through we, the whole life cycle, pro tips included. Oh, man. Well, I'm glad, Eva, that we got that solved. So now I think all of our, um, our farmer listeners will know how to identify discrimination and also how to avoid it on the farm. So now we just have to had to learn to do the same with the poison ivy <laughs> yeah. and oak, right? Yeah, stay far away, identify it, and then avoid it at all costs. Exactly. Um, exactly. As as reasonable for sure. So right. thanks so much, right. Sarah, Only for exploring through discrimination on the farm. Um, legally speaking, what it is, how to identify it, how to avoid it. Um, pro tips on how to effectively manage it, and um, you know what those pro tips really are are. Um, you know, options for new systems to put in place to really bolster your legal resilience within the realm of employment from everything from the interview process all the way through the hiring, working, and, you know, the inevitable sometimes, in some cases, the firing process. Um, so if you are in Minnesota or Wisconsin, like Sarah mentioned, we have state-specific guides that we have um, just finished writing for you all. We were grateful to get um, grant funding to do that research. And so um, the federal and state laws are available to all you farmers in Minnesota and Wisconsin. So definitely check out those guides on our website farmcommons.org if you are interested and for for the rest of you all in the other 48 states um, we are you know on our way we're working towards getting the whole 50 state archive researched and written up um, but in the meantime the federal guide is available to you and so um, that guide is called just as a reminder avoiding discrimination in employment for farm and ranch businesses and that is available to um, farm commons members on our website so if you are you know just joining us and tuning in to our podcast for the first time i know it's kind of odd to welcome you at the end of the episode but welcome we're excited to have you please check out our our brand new website farmcommons.org for um, a resource library of you know hundreds of uh, legal educational resources um, a community page where you can connect with um, farm service providers us at farm commons and your farmer peers on how to solve through and brainstorm uh, farm law issues specific to your unique operation um, and also attend our workshops and um, you know really get the opportunity to dive deep into uh, the core five areas of farm law so employment law is just one of those core five areas where we can build legal resilience for your farm and your farming community so um, lots more good stuff on our website and um, yeah more more podcasts to come as we um, put out more guides and um, as we see more hot topic issues that rise up from from all of our farm members so thanks again Sarah for everything that you've shared and I hope that um, your poison ivy or poison oak goes away fast <laughs> oh thanks me too <sighs> yeah and I hope you can clear out all the that poison ivy and your blackberries or oh black I know is it is it blueberries it's blueberries, blueberries? Yeah. okay we've got blackberries out here everywhere oh yum <laughs> 
Super. Well, thanks again and um, keep well and be well, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Farm Commons podcast. For more information on what you just heard, as well as a variety of farm law guides, models, checklists, flowcharts, and more, visit our website at farmcommons.org. You can also email us at info at farmcommons.org if you have any questions or comments about this podcast or any of our online materials. Thanks everyone for listening and keep on growing.